Episode 16 of ICO 41, Weekly In-Depth Analysis of Initial Coin Offerings. Episode 16 of ICO 41. My name is Owen Scott, and I'm your podcast host. This podcast focuses deeply on a single ICO each week and presumes some knowledge of the basics of blockchain technology. What's a little different about this podcast is that we read the white papers, we investigate the background of the team, and if we can, we spend some time communicating directly with them, and then we report to you in detail. As always, this podcast is not intended as investment advice, nor as information to lead to any particular action whatsoever. Our aim is to inform, not to suggest. Now this week we're going to cover a token sale that is directly related, conceptually at least, to a subject that has been very much in the news this last week, ICO compliance. When I say in the news, I'm referring to recent actions by the United States Security and Exchange Commission, the SEC, as well as the Canadian equivalent of that organization. And we really need to continue to cover the actions of these types of regulatory bodies because they're already starting to impact the token sale or the ICO market in big ways. So before we begin to analyze this week's particular token sale, let's first talk about the SEC because they have clearly moved from the wait and watch mode that they were in for quite some time to a much more active role. Namely, prosecution, freezing assets, collaboration with enforcement from other countries, just the kind of things that you would imagine that they'd be doing at some point, and they are now. On December 4th, the SEC issued a press release that announced that they were obtaining an emergency asset freeze for what they termed a fast-moving initial coin offering fraud that raised up to $15 million from thousands of investors since August. The notice refers to PlexCorps, and their coin is PlexCoin. Various news reports revealed more details, like the fact that the province of Quebec has taken action against them. In fact, actually sentencing the individual running the ICO to two months in jail. As well as the fact that the company remained defiant in the face of all of this. Which actually seems to be true, since the website is still up, and there was a post on their Facebook page just the other day. I continued to do some research on other news articles as well as the SEC press release itself, and I found out that the person behind all of this was a 32-year-old Canadian citizen named Dominic LaCroix. The other principal named was his 26-year-old girlfriend, and they, apparently they live in Quebec. The SEC press release describes this person, Dominic, as a recidivist Quebec securities law violator. So we can just imagine that Quebec, who knew this person, contacted the SEC. And that's when the SEC sort of sprang into action. The most amazing part about this story is that when you read the white paper, which, by the way, you somehow still can, and if you look at the website, I can't for the life of me figure out who would ever have invested in this project in the first place. One of the most bizarre aspects of this white paper was that the team members refused to identify themselves. 
They said they had a team of over 50 people, but due to some top-secret reasons, they weren't quite able to identify any of those team members. In fact, the entire premise of this anonymity was literally, our top priority is to provide you for safety and confidentiality. How could we possibly guarantee your confidentiality if we reveal our identity? It was ludicrous. It went on to say, then anyone could contact us, visit us, and scrutinize our operations. We don't want that. And that was in the white paper. And then there was a signature page on the white paper with a signature and a letter from the president, but it didn't even have a name. It just had some chicken scratch and a signature. It was signed president and CEO. But beyond the white paper, the website, which still exists, has the most ridiculous set of information on it, completely and totally impossible. I totally understand how it looks okay, uh, not bad design, but it says things like no fees for any transactions. And then it has these pictures of these credit cards. This credit card will allow you to buy anything, anywhere, with no fees. Oh, and by the way, everything you buy is 10% off. It's a 10% discount for everything you buy with this credit card. It was just one thing after another. It was completely and totally impossible. And they somehow raised $15 million. In fact, I saw, as I was doing some more investigation, I saw a screenshot that somebody had posted that showed a Facebook page for the company with over 30,000 followers at one point. Right now, the Facebook page has 11,000 followers. So it's just unfathomable to me that people are investing in ICOs like this, which makes me realize that we need more podcasts just like this one or more people to reach because this is just sad and kind of dangerous. In a way, I think it's really admirable of the SEC to step in on these kinds of ICOs and, and sort of do something about it. Apparently, they may be able to return the money to those people who actually invested Uh, But anyway, that was just one of the colorful news stories about the SEC this week. Clearly, the regulatory aspect of cryptocurrency is heating up, and it's becoming extremely important. And this, of course, leads us to the ICO this week, which is... AMLT, the Token of Compliance. Now, the first thing I want to point out is that AMLT is not open to U.S. and Canadian citizens. In fact, they go even a step further. They're not only not allowed to participate in the sale, but if you even try to visit their website and you have an IP address from Canada or the United States or maybe some other places, you're completely blocked from even seeing the website, much less the white paper or the team or anyone else. Now, I've got to confess that I was a little bit irked by this at first. And so I dropped into their Telegram channel and I opened up a line of communication uh, with them. I spoke through Telegram with Grant Blaisdell, their CMO. And my position was that I thought it was a little bit much to literally block the traffic. But then he pointed out and said, look, you need to read the white paper and you can see what we're about. We're sort of a gold standard effort for compliance and fraud prevention. 
And so I took this to mean that by doing this, they were sort of showing the world how serious they are about compliance. And this is one of those steps that you know, they are taking to ensure compliance for their own token sale. And he was actually kind enough to provide the white paper and what they also call the light paper to me. And as I read these papers, I began to reflect a little bit in general about the cryptocurrency world as it stands now. It also led me to think about the audience of this podcast. The first thing that I think we should all understand is that those who are interested in this space should realize that it's a big world out there. And by no means is the United States the only country interested in cryptocurrency and the blockchain. In fact, not by a long shot. In fact, it's sort of the opposite. It took them a while, the United States, to really get involved in this. I think Europe and Asia are ahead in some ways. And it's the same thing for the listeners of this podcast. We have a very international audience. And so what I need to do is just put aside any remnant that I have of what you might call nationalistic irritation over these kinds of things. And I'll take an approach from the position of those who are launching these ICOs. So I'm not as irked as I was, I guess you could say. Uh, Having said all that, of course, uh, the first thing I did, because the white paper was so intriguing, that I just did an end run around their little IP block. Uh, So I could actually check out the website and the team and the message and everything. But anyway, let's talk about the AMLT concept, because actually it's it's a good concept. I think maybe the best way to describe this is uh, know your customer and anti-money laundering, which is a big thing nowadays. Uh, AML and KYC on steroids. First of all, this whole concept of KYC and AML has become very important, not just for ICOs, but also in terms of terrorist and other criminal activities. The light paper refers to studies that shows that AML and counterterrorism practices are a $100 billion market just for blockchain, and that the flaws, the current flaws in these methods have contributed to a lack of widespread adoption. Now, their project, AMLT, is to build on an existing platform that's run by the company CoinFirm, their company. And that's designed to help expose money from illegal sources, or at least expose risk profiles for specific addresses on blockchain. And at its most fundamental concept, this is necessary because, as we all know, the blockchain is designed to remove any authoritative presences in the middle of the transaction, like a bank or an institution. But since blockchain does that, it also makes it a lot more difficult to perform accurate and definitive anti-money laundering and KYC practices. So if you'll notice, you'll find that KYC and AML actually goes on mostly at the points where the blockchain meets the traditional fiat systems, like exchanges and those that are running ICOs. What AMLT is planning to do, and already does actually on the CoinFirm platform, is to be able to show risk for specific addresses on the blockchain. We'll go into a little bit more detail about that as we talk about the white paper. The token itself, of course, is designed to democratize the current existing platform. The idea is that the members of the network the vast majority of which are good actors, work together to expose the bad actors. 
I think we should understand that the main reason right now for this is that for ICOs especially is that when banks receive the money from the ICOs, or at least the ICOs try to give the money to banks, the banks need to know where the participant money came from, where those funds came from. They want to know precisely who contributed to the token sale and to ensure that that money doesn't have a shady history. Now, if ICOs don't do a good job of ferreting this out and they don't do rigorous know your customer, the banks will refuse to accept the funds. In fact, in an interview with the Bitcoin Network, uh, Grant Blaisdell explained that ICOs have approached CoinFirm asking desperately for help to verify the source of funds using the platform that exists now so that they could get risk analysis to help the ICO legitimize the funds that they collected during their ICO so that the bank would take them. So that's the main concept of what they currently do, an existing platform, and what they plan to do with the token. Let's talk about the company and the team. The company behind this ICO, as I mentioned, is CoinFirm. Now, they've been around since early 2016. And they started by building a service that allows reporting and queries against an API that they published to provide risk reports for people using cryptocurrency. Now, these reports, as a customer, you could order a basic report for as little as 10 cents a piece. Standard report is $3.00. And the so-called enterprise report is $12.50. Now, that's quite a range, so I'll dig in a little bit there. The basic query and report takes as its input a cryptocurrency public key, which, as you probably know, is generally an address of a sender or receiver of a blockchain transaction. In the sample report provided by the light paper, we see a total number of transactions, total inputs, total outputs that this address has been involved in. You see the largest, you see the smallest transactions, you see a risk score and a recommendation, like do not transact. And I suppose the advanced reports would presumably show more details as to what is so suspicious precisely about all the activity. And I would imagine that all of this takes into consideration things like whether transactions were tumbled or mixed in a way to anonymize the sender or receiver. So the point being, this is a successful company with more than a year of operation with an operational platform, plus a plethora of information that you can read in the form of blogs and videos and other sources of information. The team is led by a CEO who was the head of AML and CTF processes at the Royal Bank of Scotland. If you look at his LinkedIn profile, it shows experience in the same role in a large worldwide legal firm headquartered in the UK, located in 28 other countries. His experience as a compliance officer goes back 10 years when he was working with the AIG Investments in Ireland. The CIO also has experience as a fraud investigator and also worked at the Royal Bank of Scotland. His experience goes back years as a financial auditor performing things like SOX audits, other financial audits for major organizations. There are also two other founders who have extensive blockchain experience, one of which actually worked on a multi-algorithm mining farm for cryptocurrency. Now, the website itself doesn't have direct LinkedIn profiles, but it's easy enough to go and search the names, which I did. It does show a wide range of talent. I saw some developers listed, but it looks like these developers are the kinds of developers that you might find for a centralized application, like 
the one that CoinFirm currently has, runs on SQL, and that's likely who they are. It's not to say that they won't be able to learn specific blockchain development, and it's also not to say that the company won't be hiring specialized blockchain developers as the project moves forward, of course. To a certain extent, we should just look at the fact that this team has built a successful centralized application, and they certainly have that going for them. Let's talk about the white paper. First of all, there are two papers, actually. One's called the light paper, as I've referred to a couple of times. It's 29 pages. And there's the white paper at 55 pages. Now, the light paper has a little bit more of a marketing style, uh, whereas the white paper has a more academic style and quite a bit more detail. Both of them go into good detail about the current system. Now, that's centralized, but it is worth mentioning some metrics. It's a system that provides, as we mentioned before, detailed reports about risk profiles, but it handles 100 queries per second, and it has something like 3 terabytes of SQL tables, 500 gigabytes of graph data, and 250 gigabytes of raw blockchain data, which is kind of interesting in that the current system is already partially using blockchain technology in some fashion. Now, while the system can handle up to 100 queries, it still does take 10 seconds to generate a report, which is about what you would expect for a system that needs to deliver charts and graphs over the internet. It's a web-based application. The currencies that are supported currently are Bitcoin, Dash, Ethereum, and ERC-20 tokens, and interestingly, ERC-223 tokens, by the way, which you don't hear too much about. But you know, we should hear more about the ERC-223 token because uh, it's kind of interesting it's a, it's a new standard. It's designed to be an improvement over the ERC-20 standard, and it solves some pretty important problems. The main one being, there is this issue where if an accidental send to an Ethereum ERC-20 address uh, that is not designed to accept tokens, those coins could actually be lost, just sort of stuck in limbo. In fact, this is such a problem that there's apparently well over $400,000 worth of various tokens on various coins that are just sort of stuck or lost, uh, residing in these contracts that just don't expect to receive tokens. So if this ERC-223 standard is adopted, this just won't happen anymore because the tokens in this standard are returned to the sender through sort of a failback mechanism that reverts the operation. So I think it's kind of interesting that uh, that this token is supported. And in fact, that is going to be, as we'll mention in a moment, the actual token of their sale. Uh, in addition to that, uh, it mentions that the platform is agnostic to blockchain, which simply means that within about 30 days, just about any coin can be supported on this platform. Now, the white paper itself does a good job of stating the underlying problem, which, if you think about it, is the massive cost and loss associated with money laundering. In fact, if you go to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, you find out that as much as $2 trillion flows illegally through the world per year, and that flow seems to be increasing at a rate of about 6.5% per year, which is about twice as fast as the world economy is growing, by the way. And enforcement, well, it's pretty weak, to say the least. Of the more than $7 trillion that have flowed illegally through the world since about 2004, about 2% of it was actually stopped. So when you read a white paper like this, 
the main question that we always need to ask, specifically when you read the tokenization of an existing platform, should always be, okay, look, you've already got a service that works to provide the reports that people seem to need and want, but why do you now need a token to decentralize this? The reason why this should always be the question that we ask these companies who currently offer a centralized service and now want to decentralize it is we just need a healthy skepticism and just should make every effort to distinguish whether the reason for the token is merely to take advantage of the runaway ICO market or if there is, in fact, a valid reason. Now, the first answer to this question that I would pose um, appears on page 13 of the white paper, and it's answered several times more, where the authors state that the missing element, and I'm quoting, is a token that will streamline processes and develop rewards and benefits for its participants. So what's happening here with this token and with the blockchain is that members that use the token to access the site instead of a login will be afforded some additional benefits. They're listed here. Uh, exclusive access to knowledge and information that's just not available through the traditional customer channel. Substantial discounts for reports. And this last one might be the most important, the ability to evaluate market participants. And this last one is derived from the fact that participants will provide information about themselves when using the system, which will allow potential risk from standardized reports, but also be informed by the voice of other market participants. And so with additional information injected, if you will, by using this token from people who have maybe what you might call mitigating circumstances or circumstances that just are not readily obvious that add value, that ability to do that and be rewarded for providing that additional information through a tokenization process will also enrich the platform. It'll also make the platform more accurate and less likely to maybe create a false positive for a high-risk profile. And of course, the key here, the key with the uh, participation is that those people who participate in this network will be rewarded in AMLT tokens. So you got this existing system sweeping up data from various public blockchains. Then you have these other network participants adding even more value and then being rewarded. And the white paper actually mentions companies like existing clients, partners, authorities even. Um, they also mentioned some pretty interesting additional data sources, uh, not only just the internet, but, you know, the so-called deep web uh, using technologies like Tor and I2P and other what you might call dark net markets. It's very interesting. And the white paper goes on to mention all kinds of clever algorithms, as many as 200 different algorithms in order to make sense of all this data that it's collecting and then to provide valuable, actionable risk profiles. I think while it's true that we need to examine the benefits of a token, and we see some here, uh, we also have to remember, in terms of value of the project, uh, that the existing platform is definitely something to consider in our evaluation. Uh, most ICOs that come out start with absolutely nothing but a promise. This is one ICO that actually has something to build on top of. Let's talk about the roadmap. Uh, there is a roadmap. Uh, there's not any dates that I could find associated with the milestones. Uh, the tokens, I know this much, uh, that are purchased during the sale will be released by the end of February. So that could be taken as some kind of, you know, date-driven milestone. 
I couldn't really find any information about when the entire platform would be ready for launch. Let's talk about the token. The token itself is called AMLT. Notably, it's an ERC-223 token, which is interesting. Nice improvement there. Uh, the token itself will be required to join the network. So once the sale is complete, if a participant wants to join the network, they'll need to hold 50,000 AMLT. Now, the current price uh, of AMLT during the sale, which is live now, uh, is about $0.22 cents a token based on the uh, Ethereum price right now. And this amounts to roughly $10,000 to join the network. That's to join the network as a network participant. Now, of course, the token sale is a different story. Um, what you can actually buy is much, much lower. Uh, like I said before, the token generally provides these benefits that are listed earlier, uh, as well as uh, discounts on existing services uh, in the form of these risk reports uh, that we mentioned earlier. Let's talk about the sale itself. Uh, the pre-sale started on November 7th, and it lasted until December 10th. The target of the pre-sale, I'm inferring, uh, was apparently, I guess what you call largish potential network members, because the minimum token purchase was 500,000 AMLT, which at the moment is worth roughly $100,000 US dollars. As of December 18th, which is yesterday, uh, the amount raised was over 9,000 Ether, uh, which is roughly $6 million. Now, the sale that's going on right now, the public sale, that ends on January 30th, 2018. The total amount available during the crowd sale is 210 million AMLT tokens for a total cap of about $46 million. Now, there's going to be another 120 million tokens in reserve, which will be distributed monthly to network members based on how much data they are able to contribute to the platform in the form of those rewards we were talking about. The way that they're distributing this uh, token sale is the founding team will get 10% of the crowd sale. The advisors will get 2%. Rewards for referrals and bounties will be about 1%. And the development team, plus some bonuses, gets about 4%. There's a half a percent for charity, which is kind of interesting, line item, you don't see that often. And the total amount of tokens in the smart contract are 400 million tokens. Now, in response to a question at Bitcoin Talk, uh, the team mentioned that unsold tokens will go into the pool to reward members on a monthly basis. Let's talk about the reaction from the community. Uh, the team has done a good job with the community. Um, it should be noted that this token sale is assisted by Token Market, uh, Isolus, and CRC. Now, listeners of this podcast know Token Market pretty well from other ICOs. But I should mention that Isolus, I-S-O-L-A-S, is a, is a notable law firm in Gibraltar, which specifies in blockchain concerns. I would imagine it's probably the firm that suggested that U.S. and Canadian web traffic be blocked, perhaps. Uh, but in any case, uh, that's who's helping them. And then there's a company named QRC. Now, QRC is an interesting company. Uh, it's pioneering this concept of reg tech. Now, you know fintech or fintech, financial technology. Well, there's also reg tech, regulation technology, regulation as a platform. So if you go to the QRC website, it's kind of interesting to read some of their ideas. Um, I think that they probably provided quite a bit of thought leadership and contribution to the white paper. They're known uh, for their reg tech expertise. And when you go to their website, you see that CoinFirm is in their portfolio. 
it's not clear to me whether or not that means they're owned by uh, QRC or what that means, but uh, portfolio is just an interesting question. You see that on some other sites as well. It's certainly some kind of affiliation in any case. The announcement of the sale landed pretty much on November 8th on Bitcoin Talk. And there's about 17 pages from the community on Bitcoin Talk, and pretty much 100% of it is positive. Uh, a few senior members, mostly junior members, uh, just sort of wishing them well. And in some cases, some of the more senior members are promoting it. Uh, there's about 1,600 uh, members in the Telegram chat channel. Uh, the main person that's monitoring that channel is Grant Blaisdell again. I sort of chatted with him, and he's definitely doing a good job of fielding questions. Uh, the Reddit community, very quiet. There's just really a bunch of posts, but there's no comments or anything. So I don't see a great deal of negativity or anything like that uh, with respect to, to this ICO. I, I'd say that they're, they're doing an admirable job. Uh, probably Token Market's helping out a little bit with that with respect to the sort of how to interact with the community, but they're doing a good job. And uh, I, I just don't see any drama or any uh, difficulty on any of the channels. Uh, it seems to be just pretty straightforward. And, um, you know, I think the white paper and the light paper probably speak for themselves uh, in terms of the seriousness of, uh, of, the, of the project. And I think that that community is more or less receiving it pretty well. Let's talk about the business viability in any gotchas. Um, the business viability is pretty clear to me here, mainly because most of the business model itself that's listed in the white paper and shown in the white paper is already proven since they are commercially successful uh, with their current offering of services. Uh, there's no question that the need is clear for this product. You know, there is a lot to be said about the transparency, I guess you could say, of uh, of the public blockchain network. Um, there's a lot of misunderstandings as well in terms of anonymity. Half the people think that Bitcoin is completely anonymous, and the other half of the people say, no, it's quite the opposite. <laughs> and regardless of what you actually believe, the fact remains that at first glance, a Bitcoin or Ethereum or a, any blockchain address, for the most part, uh, is seems quite anonymous because it's not human readable. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hashed, um, scrambled, more or less, key. And there's no identifier. On the other hand, there's also known, for the most part, with the exception of some of these mixing technologies and tumbling technologies, there's a pretty clear and good way to trace back every transaction because you have a copy of the entire blockchain since day one. So there's this interesting interplay between transparency and anonymity. And so the difficulty becomes in matching what appears to be a semi-anonymous hashed key with an individual. And it's those edge points at the exchanges, whenever the currency touches fiat currency, where the break in anonymity needs to happen. Hence the KYC AML procedures that are in place at these edge points and which governments are rigorously trying to enforce and banks as well. But the trick becomes when you don't really have at your fingertips that mapping, so to speak, 
all you've got is this massive history, and all you can do is sort of infer. So what is needed, obviously, is some way of automatically providing more information that might be pertinent. So imagine in your mind that you've got this, you've just received $50,000 worth of Bitcoin from someone, but you don't know who it is, or perhaps you think you know who it is based on your potentially lame KYC procedures. And all you really have is this 150 gigabyte or more blob of data that you've got to sort through and figure out what kind of activity could possibly be happening that might lead you to believe you should not transact with this person providing you this $50,000 or $50 million. So this system that can go into, let's say, the dark web and uh, find Bitcoin addresses flying around on the Silk Road Exchange, which doesn't exist anymore, but there's other things just like it. And other places and sources of information can all lend great deal of value to the whole process. So that's the business use case. And that's clearly needed now and going to be needed in the future. So at a fundamental analysis, we have to say that the business viability is actually pretty good here. The only thing that I can imagine that could be a little bit uh, difficult with respect to the operational aspects of this is that since U.S. and Canada is barred from the sale at the moment, in order for companies or clients from those uh, jurisdictions uh, to join the network, since they can't do it through the sale, would have to approach a coin firm directly and ask to join one fashion or another, maybe not through the sale, but through privately, perhaps, uh, and then also on exchanges afterward. So that's just a small gotcha, but I think it's certainly possible for them to join. And in fact, this was confirmed to me by Grant on a separate chat in Telegram. Uh, the other possible gotcha is that actually this is not an uncompetitive space. There are some other competitive offerings out there. I looked at them briefly. It seems to me that CoinFirm seems to be a bit ahead of them. If you want, you can take a little, do a little more investigation in that regard. I'll just do a quick final takeaway here. I don't have a doubt that this will be a successful sale. I mean, it already has been. I doubt very much that they're going to have any regulatory issues. They seem to have a solid team, uh, and they've got obviously good and capable partners. Uh, They're doing an excellent job of marketing. They're already uh, filling a pressing need in the crypto space, uh, particularly for ICOs, uh, and also banks that absolutely need to validate uh, the source of funds. So I feel like uh, this is actually a pretty solid project. And and, uh, even though that uh, I had a little trouble getting to the information, I felt like it was worth it. It was worth it for me to uh, be able to do this analysis and find a project that was uh, definitely offering something that has a compelling need and is very relevant right now when you consider what's going on in the compliance world with cryptocurrencies. So that's my take on AMLT this week. Well, the good news this week is that I have some time to return to some uh, topics that we've discussed in the past, and we'll take two of them. Uh, We'll take uh, B3, the infamous B3 coin, as well as uh, ROI coin. So we'll start with B3. B3, interesting project, has had some major, major issues. Uh, Everything from being delisted on exchanges to a massive inflation that was practically impossible to even mitigate. I think they're still working on trying to figure out how to mitigate that. 
uh, to all kinds of what appear to be wallet problems, although the devs still are active. So if you were to go to the Discord chat right now, they have a phenomenal amount of channels, I think a dozen or so channels, and you'll see that they're still providing updates to wallets. Uh, they're still trying to help people get some of the coins off exchanges. Uh, they've got some kind of uh, mechanism by which it gets converted over to some other thing called KB3, which sounds like a division of a thousand or so coins uh, based on whatever the balance is. I don't know. Too much detail to go into in this short piece of uh, podcast here, but um, but B3 is still alive. That's definitely been damaged. B3 was interestingly mentioned in tangent on the Discord channel at ROI Coin, very briefly and quickly. And and one of the things that I saw in an earlier conversation at ROI Coin was the membership will be called upon to vote at some point in ROI's future that will allow the control of inflation. This is markedly different from B3, such that it was really just the decisions made by a few people. It's kind of interesting to me that ROI coin is a little bit more democratic in that fashion. Let's talk about ROI coin. Uh, ROI coin have, has been active, very active. They've got an updated wallet. I downloaded that wallet, and the balance that I had on the original wallet uh, was... Uh, intact. It was very seamless, very smooth. There doesn't seem to be any bugs in this new wallet at all. And the stats are very interesting. The statistics are quite interesting. So basically, I staked uh, 2,000 coins on uh, 1120-something, and uh, right around the time that I had the podcast, and uh, I accrued interest of 199% interest. Uh, and the value was uh, about 200, 250 coins on maturation, uh, roughly in about 30 days. So I staked the coins for about 30 days. Now, all of this is just roughly simply because it's really not done by days. It's done by a specific block. And I'm fairly certain that that's how most of these uh, proof-of-stake coins go, is that you, you can't say that it's on this day. You just say, this is the deposit block and this is the maturation block. And so you have an estimate, and it really depends on a lot of things like difficulty and the number of miners and things like that. But it's pretty close, you know. And uh, so what, what we're seeing here is uh, uh, an estimated date of the 30th of this month. And that'll result in some form of return, which sounds like it's going to be roughly about 200% per annum divided by 12. And so at that point, uh, I believe I would have the ability to, uh, to restake for either a longer period or a shorter period or uh, maybe a six-month period. I think it's just very interesting. It, it's essentially working. Now, one of the things that has to be understood is that uh, proof-of-stake coins have a uh, reputation for sort of coming and going, and also for these outrageous um, interest rates to be temporary. And they should be temporary, and they have to be temporary, because look what happened with B3 coin, right? That's one example. But just fundamentally, uh, you know, the laws of mathematics, the laws of finance haven't changed just because it's something a little bit more fluid and dynamic. Interest rates, money supply, all these concepts, supply and demand, value, uh, markets, 
it's something that is definitely applicable to cryptocurrency, but there's nothing about cryptocurrency that inherently allows you to violate those rules. So if you are going to go down the proof-of-stake coin, masternode or whatever road, make sure that you keep an eye on it and make sure that you have very clear expectations of what you want to get out of it and make sure that you don't just set it and forget it and expect some kind of very, very high return indefinitely. It just doesn't work that way. So that's it for this week. Uh, Sorry about being a little late on the broadcast, but uh, see you next week. Thank you. to you by ICO41.com.